keep those Bibles open with you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Seb, uh, if I haven't met you. Uh, before we dive in, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have gathered your people here this day to hear it, and we pray that you would please help us by your spirit to listen to what it has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as was mentioned, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been in this series in the book of Acts with, I think, some remarkable teaching reinforcements. I don't know quite how Dave and his team have pulled it off, but every day in my home, in my workplace, in my car and on my phone, in fact, wherever I go, I keep hearing what I heard on Sunday. Big breaking news. Something unstoppable is spreading. We can't contain it. Everyone is talking about it. Thousands of people have been impacted. Life cannot just go on the same. We're living in uncertain times, authorities cracking down, borders being crossed. Here's a map to show the trail of where it's gone so far. Threat levels have been raised. Now it's pandemic proportions. Those in power greatly concerned about where it will go next. Big questions being asked. What will come of all this? How will it affect tomorrow? And all the while, a great expectation and hope for a cure. It's kind of like one big series. And even the maps look way too familiar for comfort. Well, if you're here today or live streaming, uh, this sermon isn't about coronavirus, but it's not a bad analogy for where we're up to in the book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 8, a very clear division line had formed. Those in Jerusalem who considered that Christianity, the gospel, is a virus, those who considered the gospel as God's cure. So if your week's been like mine and coronavirus is front and centre, I want to just start there and simply say, the good news is we actually might be in a better place to connect with God's word this morning because of the situation we and the world are in. You see, life in Acts chapter 8 was anything but same-same. Everything had become unsettled. Jess told me yesterday she walked into Coles and uh, there were boxes strewn everywhere and a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of uh, shelves that were just empty. And the Coles employer said to her, uh, employee said, Welcome to chaos. <laughs> well, this morning, as we look at Acts 8 more closely, the question I want you to ask yourself is this. Where is my confidence in uncertain times? And the good news is Luke, the doctor, the author of this two-part book, written to Theophilus to give him what? Certainty. A God's eye view of what's happening in the world. He has an answer for our question. And it's my hope as we grasp this passage a little better that Luke might give us the same unshakable certainty that many Christians had so that as we leave church this morning, we might leave with something different 
something noticeable, something authentic, because of where it's anchored. You'll need a Bible if you're writing notes or following on the outline. Three points. Point one, uncontainable gospel. Point two, unparalleled power. And point three, unchanged at heart. Point one. Our story picks up from the brutal execution scene of Stephen. Many of us looked at it in growth groups over the last week. Read with me from verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is one of those loaded verses. Screams out of us. Firstly, because Jerusalem... Judea and Samaria are all mentioned. And as readers of Acts, that's like a neon sign for us. For seven chapters, we've been watching this gospel church grow in Jerusalem, but already we know it can't just stay there. We've heard the game plan back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Secondly, chapter 8, verse 1 stands out because remember the word church in the New Testament simply means gathering, assembly. It's one of the great blessings of God's covenant people being gathered to fellowship around his word. And yet, here in verse 1, we're told they were scattered sounds like a problem. They didn't have live stream back then. Verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Can you imagine what it's like to, one week, leave everything behind and flee? I think few of us can. I suppose if if you were like one of the Aussie families who packed up their cars and left homes in the threat, the face of a bushfire, perhaps you can relate a little. These Christians fled from Saul's hot rage in Jerusalem. And yet, Luke tells us that as they went, a single-minded passion gripped them. Their new life in Christ had become so very real as they quite literally left behind their old life. People probably saw them with bags carried, asked them, what are you doing here? And these Christians spoke honestly and answered as everyday evangelists, ordinary Christians, speaking about Jesus against the odds in the face of terrible hardship. What happens next at the end of this first section? Briefly, verse 5, look with me. We're told about one Christian in particular, Philip. Philip, not uh, not an apostle, but one of the seven like Stephen. And he goes down where? Samaria. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to Philip's message about the Messiah, the promised king. 
And God grants Philip great power. He drives out demons, heals those who are paralyzed, and a whole city glimpses God's future perfected kingdom right there in Samaria. And by verse 8, we've come full circle. We began in Jerusalem with a funeral, but in God's goodness, it's led to exceeding joy in Samaria. Why? Because God's gospel, God's good news, is uncontainable. Well, what about you and I? What are we to take away from this first section in Acts 8? How might it help us with our question? Where is my confidence in uncertain times? Firstly, I think it serves as a prompt for you and I to put our full confidence in the sovereignty of God. And this is about what's going on in your heart and what's going on in my heart. But remember Stephen last chapter. As men were about to throw rocks at him, looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus in charge. We've seen too, just so far in these first eight verses, that no matter how bad it gets, the word of God is not stopped. The people of God are not stopped. And I take it that Luke is telling us this for reasons of comfort as well as history, for reasons of courage, because it shows that amidst persecution, amidst opposition, none of that is a sign that God is being defeated. The opposite is true. We're reminded that in the worst of times, God uses evil for his good purposes. And also we see that even persecution doesn't stop God's message spreading. In fact, God's allowing of persecution is the means through which the gospel gets out of Jerusalem. So ask yourself, if we have a God like this, who is sovereign and good and in charge, then are you facing any personal hardships at the moment? Is it a potential for real hardship coming up? The potential for opposition at work to your faith? Are you put off when you read articles or newspapers or those who are criticizing the church? And if so, how might God use a pressure moment, maybe in your life, maybe in our church life collectively, for the spread of his word? How might he even... Loosen the leash on Satan's hatred of the church so that the new life that we share in Christ, many of us, becomes more real in practice than ever before. Are we prepared for that? Secondly, confidence in the message and the task. Now, Tasha is helpful here. This is about our mouths and speaking, what comes out of it. We saw in verse 4 that evangelism or gospeling it's not the job of so-called ministry professionals. It's not uh, like we saw with the apostles. It's not those who are not just for those who are on ministry staff or paid here at this church. No, under God, all of us have a message to take wherever we are. Like the scattered Christians, what we find joyful bubbles to the surface. What we, where we find hope when everyone around us is anxious. We are to take Jesus wherever we are. 
And if you're a Christian, I want you to ask yourself three check-in questions today. I find them helpful to ask every, every, from time to time. And they're this. Firstly, am I able to explain the gospel to someone? Secondly, when did I last have a go at it? And thirdly, are there any ways that I can get better at telling this message to others? I want you to jot those down or take a picture of them, but think about it. Be honest. Take heart. Luke doesn't want us to sit on the sidelines. Point one, confidence in God's uncontainable gospel. Point two, unparalleled power. Reading from verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Seven times in these opening 13 verses of the chapter, Luke speaks of something great. Our English Bibles translate it variedly, but in the original Greek, the same adjective is used each time. Let me show you. Verse 1, a great persecution. Verse 2, great mourning for Stephen. Verse 7, a great cry from the unclean spirits being driven out. Verse 9, Simon boasts of being someone great. Verse 10, from the very least to the very greatest in Samaria. Verse 10, they called Simon the power of God that is called great. Verse 13, Simon follows Philip, seeing him do signs and great miracles, and he's amazed. What are we to make of Luke's theme of greatness in this passage? I take it that if we have eyes to see it, right at this point where God is about to advance his kingdom outward, Luke lifts a veil on heavenly realities and a kingdom clash of sorts is underway. And yet Luke leaves us with no uncertainty about the unparalleled power of the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself, was, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. The contrast is glaring. Simon is going around Samaria and telling people how great Simon is. And they believe it. But then we see Philip, verse 12, preaching not himself, but good news about the kingdom of God. Pointing away from himself to the name of his risen Lord Jesus. And even Simon can see the difference. Gospel power is unparalleled power. Jesus has no rivals. And this ends up being the first of three episodes in Acts. The other two are in chapter 13 and then climactically in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. 
the gospel message encounters magic or sorcerers, magicians. But Luke doesn't just throw these stories in somewhat randomly to kind of spice things up and help us to enjoy acts more. No, he shows it at key points in the narrative to point out to us that gospel ministry is being opposed in unseen ways. And it's a little bit like in that Old Testament reading we heard earlier, where you remember the magicians in Pharaoh's court in Exodus were amazingly able to match Moses' signs, but only to a certain point. When it came to the gnats, even they had to admit, admit this is the finger of God. Well, similarly here, the, the sorcerers in Acts, I take it Luke uses as a gauge of Satan's power, even as God's kingdom advances. Because Luke wants you and I to take confidence in seeing how clearly the preaching of the gospel trumps all other claims of power, trumps all other points of security, stability, certainty. In fact, there's no competition at all. That's why at the end of each of these episodes, Luke includes some kind of note about the word of the Lord advancing. Just glance down to verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Well, what's the lesson that Luke wants us to take away? I think it's this, that the acceptance of the gospel actually brings an anchor of confidence to a society. And that the absence of the gospel in a society exposes people to all kinds of superstition, all kinds of deceit. You and I as God's people, this gathered church, we need to stay awake to the reality of some of these things. Our temptation, if your temptation is like mine, is to think as Westerners, we're too educated for this. We don't believe in evil forces and magic, but the Bible never denies the existence of Satan or demons or those who dabble there. In both Old and New Covenant, God simply warns his people, have nothing to do with such things. You and I, we live in, from a God's eye view of history, still this period in Acts, the last days, awaiting Jesus' return, and in this time, we need to avoid three mistakes. Mistake one, being naive to the supernatural as if we had no enemies. Mistake two, being excessively interested. Notice Philip doesn't go looking for spiritual warfare. Mistake three, being afraid, as though the cross had not already decisively disarmed any power Satan has. The power he has is what you give to him. He might still be active, but he's already defeated where it counts most. Uncontainable power, unparalleled, uncontainable gospel, unparalleled power, and thirdly, unchanged at heart. I'm reading from verse 14. 
When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, did you spot the most unusual thing about those verses? Think back to what Peter said back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very surprisingly, here in Acts 8, In Samaria, we're told the Samaritans heard the gospel, believed the word, were even baptized, yet we're told in verse 16, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. What's the deal here? Why do the apostles need to come down from Jerusalem and lay hands on them in this kind of two-stage process? Well, to be very clear, I don't think that this is a basis for building a theology on second baptism or on a second blessing. I think Paul makes it quite clear in Romans 8 verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you run into all kinds of theological problems by making Acts 8 the norm, as though you could be a stage one Christian who believes but hasn't receives the fullness of the promised gift. That seems to run against the whole grain of the New Testament. A better approach, I think, is to see what happens here in Acts 8, and then, just a few chapters later, again with the Gentiles, as Luke emphasising that this situation is overtly exceptional. Both Samaria and later with Cornelius, they were key border-crossing moments flagged right at the beginning in Acts. It is like an extension of Pentecost in chapter 8. Remember, you've got to remember this, centuries of hostility between Jews and Samaritans have passed. We just kind of miss that and think, Samaria, that's just another place like heading up to Newcastle. No. Stemming right back between the split of the north and south kingdom and the establishment of a temple in Samaria. And if you remember in one of our past series, Assyria comes in, wipes out the north, and Samaria becomes this place filled with intermarriage, religious blending that happened after Assyria moved in. And yet, for hundreds of years, hostility... Remember, Jesus has to tell a parable about the Good Samaritan, such is the mutual dislike and hatred of one another. Well, here, in Acts, the gospel goes to Samaria. Despite all of that history, and God waits until Peter and John, Peter, remember, told, I give you the keys to the kingdom. In all three events, Pentecost here, and then later with Cornelius, he's a key player. John, who asked at one point in the Gospels, Jesus, do you want me to pray that fire would come down on these Samaritans? They are both here. It's not as though the apostles went out to everyone who became new converts. 
at every place from Jerusalem. No, this is not a run-of-the-mill mission moment. God waits so that it might be very clear that he is in this work. And the sad irony, I think, is that those who want to teach that every Christian needs their own Pentecost experience and who base that teaching here in Acts 8 is that they actually do the opposite of what this passage is teaching. They introduce a two-tiered Christianity and undermine Christian confidence at the exact moment where God's making the opposite point. These worthy Samaritans are fully accepted by him, and they should be by the apostles as well. They, like the Gentiles soon after them, are not to be regarded as second-class citizens. Jew and Samaritan share in the unity of Christ equally through the gospel. However, there's one more twist in our passage, and it comes in verse 18. Luke takes us back once more to Simon the Samaritan, and I take it by way of warning for all of us. You see, when Simon sees the Spirit given at Peter and John laying on hands, he wants to pay them money for that power. And in verses 20 to 24, Peter could hardly rebuke him more strongly. Simon is unchanged at heart. He's still living in the old life. Notice verse 21. Seems to lean toward indicating that Simon's actually not converted at all. His heart is not right before God. But all the while, here's Simon claiming to have this new life. In the final analysis, we're not told by Luke whether Simon finally repented properly or not. Why? I think because Luke is actually more concerned to preserve the warning for us. He hasn't put this in chapter 8 just to tell a story about Simon. He shows us instead that it's possible to think you're a Christian and still be deeply unchanged at heart. Possible even to believe, agree, Christ is king, be baptized, be amazed, follow leaders around, and yet all the time still be living for the glory of self. What about you? Where's your confidence based today? It's worth asking in light of a story about Simon What's your attraction to Christianity? Is it power? Is it convenience, politics, success, leadership, family tradition, reputation? Luke is pointing out that if Jesus is a means to some other end for you, maybe you've been in this church for years and you've never been converted. Listen to the warning. Luke would have us give up whatever's mastery in our life. For Simon, it was silver. It was power. It was self-fame. Peter said, pray to the Lord. Take hold of Christ. He promises new life. Maybe you're someone at church who has been converted, but you're aware that there's something going on just at the moment Maybe in recent weeks or recent days in your thinking. Something going on maybe in your love. Something going on maybe distinctly in your behaviours. 
that you know is out of step with Jesus' rule. And if that's you, can I urge you to do something about that? Peter's quite clear, repent, seek God's forgiveness. We know God's character. Personally, we mentioned growth groups earlier. I was so encouraged a few weeks ago in our growth group when one of the leaders of that growth group looked around the room, and I'm in a men's group, and he eyed us all up off and he said, listen up, we're about to break off into smaller prayer groups. And let me just say that if you can't be honest and vulnerable in those smaller prayer groups, where else can you possibly be truly honest with other people? And he was exactly right. Basic Christianity looks back to the cross, fights sin daily with the Spirit's help in the fellowship of God's people and moves forward in hope and holiness by responding to God's word with a soft heart. That's what living the new life looks like. So where is my confidence in uncertain times? Well, Luke would have it be rooted in God's uncontainable and unrivaled gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we've heard in your word that your gospel is unstoppable. You keep your promises. Jesus is risen, ascended, at your right hand and in charge. We thank you that even amidst a time of great uncertainty, we can be reminded of your sovereignty, of your goodness, and of your unparalleled power. We pray, Lord, that for our own hearts, that you would help us to have newness of life in Christ and to keep walking by your spirit and grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.